Would you kindly turn up your Bibles to uh, Matthew 22? Matthew 22, verses uh, 22 to 33. It's on page um, 998. There's also an outline uh, on the sheets. One of the sheets you received as you came in on the inside. It would be helpful to have that in front of you. So you can see where we're going, and uh, for those of you who are taking notes, that's, that's useful there as well. I'll be this in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that uh, we can come before you and read your word and think about it together. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would be uh, working in our hearts uh, so that as we see what our Lord Jesus has said, uh, we would indeed glory in him and uh, in all that he has taught us, uh, and that we would be, be thankful uh, for the hope that you have given us. Uh, we pray that uh, you be working among us. Uh, by your word and spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Ever watch the uh, TV series 24? It's good, isn't it? It's, it's a very exciting series, uh, for those of you who, who, who don't know, it's filmed in, filmed in, in real time. Uh, the whole season, because the whole season is about the 120, each, each season is about a 124 hour period of time. Uh, there are 24 episodes, and one episode for each hour. So it's all about one day, a very exciting day, for the lead character, Jack Bauer. Because one dramatic thing after another happens in this 24 hours. Do you ever get days which are just a little bit like that? Right? Now, I'm not asking you if you get days where you know, save cities from nuclear bombs threatening to go off or, or presidential candidates being assassinated, but days when one thing after another keeps coming at you. Now, when you seem to be moving from, from one crisis to the next and you begin to wonder, well, what else is going to happen? Well, the incident that we're looking at in this passage is, happens in a, in a very tense day for Jesus. You'll recall that we are in the week leading up to his crucifixion. Jesus was in conflict with the Jewish leadership. He had spoken against them, and they in turn had tried to trap him. If they had ISA, they would have taken him in. But they had to convince the Romans that, that he was a threat, and try and get him killed by them. And so we saw last week that the Pharisees tried to trap him into telling people not to pay tax to Rome. But Jesus didn't fall in that trap. Instead, he used their question to make a point that convicted them. But no sooner the Pharisees moved off that the Sadducees came. Uh, verse 23 says, the same day they came to him. The Pharisees failed, the Sadducees tried. Though their motives were different. Uh, the Pharisees had a, a political agenda when they came to him. The Sadducees had a theological one. You see, they had distinctive beliefs. Believes that neither Jesus nor the Pharisees or the other Jews at the time shared. They, and they wanted to try and show that Jesus' position was somewhat ridiculous, somewhat laughable. They wanted to make him look silly, as if he didn't know what he was talking about. And so they came to him that same day with a question. Now, before we look at that question, let's look a bit more closely at who these Sadducees are. 
The Sadducees were another religious group within Judaism. They weren't a very big group, well, we don't know very much about them, but they do seem to be influential beyond their numbers. We know the high priest was a Sadducee, as were all his associates. And therein lay the danger. Remember, Jesus had been teaching in the temple. He had cleansed the temple, he had claimed to be God coming to the temple, but this is their turf. And they weren't going to give it up for anyone. And Jesus had been winning followers, which would lead to instability, a danger of an uprising. And, and the Romans, if, if that did happen, the Romans would put it down, and they would punish the Jews, and, and maybe they'll destroy the temple. The high priest was already working in the background to get Jesus. So he'd set things up, he was in power, and under the Romans he was fine, but he was still powerful. He had a position to look after, a temple, all the priests, and whether or not they recognized him or agreed with him, he was the spiritual leader for all the Jews. But as I said, in this passage, the most important thing about the Sadducees is not their political background, but their theology. And one big point about their theology that Matthew tells us uh, in verse 23 here is that they say there is no resurrection. Now, the Bible teaches that there will be a resurrection at the end of the age. And that those who die belonging to Christ will be with him in spirit until then, and then at the end they will be raised physically from the dead. There will be a resurrection at the end of the age. But the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that this life was all there is. They did not believe there was more to come. And they thought that when you die, you're just extinguished, annihilated. That's why they were sad, you see. Now, the people came to Jesus, these people, in verse 24. They said to him, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, as far as it goes, that's not wrong. In fact, we came across this phenomena when we were studying the book of Ruth recently, didn't we? Uh, it's called Liberite Marriage. Uh, in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 to 6, we see this. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of a, of a dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of her husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So that's the law that the Sadducees were referring to. Now, incidentally, do you notice how they said in verse 24 he, that he must raise up children for his brother? Right? The word raise up there is the same word for, that he's used in, in resurrection. It's used in a different way, a way that only the Sadducees, the Sadducees recognize, and that's the only way they recognize it. See, for the Sadducees, you don't get physically raised, but if you have children, then your name, your, your children are raised up, and your name lives on that way. That's the only raising you get. Now, the Pharisees made, uh, Sadducees made up the story to try and show that belief in the resurrection is incompatible with, with this law. It's a completely hypothetical story. In fact, there's no evidence that Nebuchadnezzar marriage was actually practiced at the time. Just trying to show that Jesus was in the wrong. So here's a somewhat silly story. Verse 25 onwards. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children left his wife to his brother. 
So to the second and third, down to the seventh. Oh, poor woman. She thinks she'd be jinxed or something. Right? But then in verse 27, after them all, the woman died. What a tragedy. And then here's the question. Verse 28. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? Well, they all had her. Gotcha, Jesus! You believe in the resurrection? It can't possibly be true because of stupid situations like this. Oh, why will she be, huh? Maybe brother number one on Sunday, brother number two on Monday, brother number... What a ridiculous thing this whole resurrection is. Imagine the confusion that would, would reign at the resurrection if there is one. And it shows the doctrine of the resurrection is a ludicrous doctrine. And we just prove it by telling a stupid story. Gloat. Verse 29, Jesus answers them, You are wrong. The emphasis there is on the word, you. You were trying to catch me out. You thought you could prove there is no resurrection, but, but you are the ones who are wrong. The word trying to say wrong there actually is, is the thieves or led astray. You are the ones who have been led astray. You're the ones who have been caught in the devil's trap. And you know why? Verse 29. No. Yeah. No, verse 29. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now when Jesus says they do not know the Scriptures, he could be referring to one or two things, probably both. First of all, the Sadducees had a truncated Bible. They had a truncated Bible. Of course, the Old Testament was the only part of the Bible that was written at the time, but they hadn't even truncated, had a truncated version of that. All the rest of the Jews, including Jesus himself, believed that the whole Old Testament was the Word of God. But the Sadducees only believed in the first five books. They didn't believe the rest. The scriptures of Jesus' time was divided into the law, the prophets, and the writings. A division that Jesus himself accepted and believed in. The Sadducees, they only had the law, the books of Moses. All the other prophets, all the other writings, they ignored. And they did not know the true scriptures. But you see, God had been revealing himself to the human race step by step. Our theologians call it progressive revelation. Since of everything there is to know about everything in Genesis, he revealed himself and his plans in an ongoing way. Step by step, culminating in the perfect revelation of himself and his son. And so you see, in the step by step progression, always with hints of what's to come, there are things that are not spoken of directly at the beginning. And the resurrection was one of them. Now the Old Testament does teach the resurrection of the dead. You only have to look at Daniel 12 verse 2 to see it very, very clearly. It says, but and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting content. Couldn't get clearer. I could never wait till later. But in the Pentateuch, the first five books, the part of the Bible that the Sadducees recognized, uh, that revelation was only in seed form. 
And so one reason why the Sadducees missed out on this doctrine is because they had a truncated Bible. They did not know the Scriptures. And friends, we must not keep a truncated Bible. We must accept and believe the whole counsel of God. We cannot pick and choose which bits we want. That's part of the reason why here at Smack we our main Bible reading and sermon works sequentially through a book of Scripture. Because otherwise the temptation would be to truncate. Not necessarily in a such a crass way as the Sadducees, but in picking and choosing. Let me show you something here. Does anyone know what this is? Anyone know what this is? It's called a lectionary. Like Anglicans all over the world use this little book to tell us what to read in church on Sunday mornings. Uh, and not just Anglicans, people from other denominations also uh, use, use this. Uh, but it is, it, is, it is widely used in nearly every Anglican church in, in, in Malaysia. This lectionary truncates the Bible. Let me explain. There are parts of the Bible you read over and over again on Sunday mornings here, and there are parts you will never ever hear on Sunday mornings in church. Now I'm talking about the daily readings, okay? Uh, not many people do that anyway. I'm talking about the main Sunday service. And this lectionary centers the scriptures in the service to make it politically correct. Because it jumps all over the place. People don't realize it. I didn't realize it. I've been using it for the last five years. Uh, whenever I preach at the, at the, at the uh, traditional service. We came to realize this because occasionally it gives us a series working through the book, a book of the Bible for a while. Uh, and one day I looked at the series on Ephesians because I was thinking about doing it and then I realized what it did. That was a couple of years ago. I will see it repeated next year because the lectionary repeats itself every three years. Right? Here's what the series looked like. Ephesians. First week, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Second week, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. But it's okay because chapter 2, verse 1 to 11 has been covered a few months beforehand for, for some other reason. Third week, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. Fourth week, 4, 1 to 16. Fifth week, 4, 25 to 5, 2. Sixth week, 5, 15 to 20. And the seventh week jumps to 6, 10 to 20. What's missing? Well, there's the first half of Ephesians 3. Maybe it's deemed to be too much like the second half of Ephesians 2. Uh, there's verse 17 to 24 of Ephesians 4, where Paul says some very negative things about the Gentiles. And Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 9, where it talks about relationships between husband and wife and children and parents and slaves and masters. In fact, the lecturer even starts mid-sentence to avoid that passage. Not fit to be read in church. Now, if you think I'm paranoid, this year uh, there was another series on 1 Peter. Lots of bits left out, and once again, same group of instructions. Where Peter talks to husband and wives, censored. I thought, well, the Holy Spirit gives us the instructions three times Ephesians, 1 Peter, and Colossians. Let's have a look at Colossians. In Colossians 3 18 to 25. Found the series on Colossians. First Sunday, Colossians 1, 1 to 14. Second Sunday continues in Colossians 1. Third Sunday, you've got Colossians 2. 
fourth Sunday, Colossians 3, and it's looking good, and the reading for the next Sunday is Hebrews 11. The Colossians series just fizzles out there. You get a Colossians 3, 12 to 17 as an option on another occasion, but you never get the bit about households in chapter 3, verses 18 to 25. And so, friends, if all the Bible teaching you got was from an Anglican church on Sundays, you would never hear what God has to say about relationships in the family. It's just too politically incorrect. So, because we're on that track, we'll try other things with gender relationships, and so, and of course, sure enough, the passage in the second half of 1 Timothy 2 about gender and ministry is never, ever read on a Sunday morning. You get the first half of 1 Timothy 1, second half of 1 Timothy 1, first half of 1 Timothy 2, and not the second half. God can't say anything about gender. Gender is mentioned again in 1 Corinthians 14, but actually jumps straight from 1 Corinthians 13 to 1 Corinthians 15. Isn't that amazing? Now, there's just one topic. I stumbled across it because I was trying to work out what was going on in Ephesians. We need to do more research to see what else they're censoring. You've got a few days, you've got the inclination to do this, come and see me. We'll work on it. I'll write an article or something, huh? But friends, to censor the word of God in this way, there's only one word for it. It is evil. No wonder Anglicans don't know what to think about these issues. God's word on it's not heard in our churches. No wonder in a denomination we're in such a mess, we're not listening to the word of God. We have been fooled by modern day Sadducees. Bible is not the word of whoever the politically correct people are who wrote this thing. It's their, it's their word. They can choose what to put in or leave out. But it's God's word. It's not their church. It's not your church or my church. It is God's church. And we do not censor God's word in God's church. Because if we do, we end up under God's judgment. And the church ends up with a truncated Bible. Like the Bible of the Sadducees. The second reason why the Sadducees didn't know the Scriptures because they, was because they failed to see Jesus in them. The Old Testament is full, full, full of prophecies about Jesus. Even if you had just the first five books, you could see Jesus there. Jesus is the seed of the woman, promised in Genesis 3, who would, who would crush the serpent's head and yet be crushed in his heel. His salvation is foreshadowed in the flood of Genesis 6 and 9. He's the promised seed of Abraham in Genesis 12. He's the one who is both God and man who struggles with Jacob in Genesis 32. His suffering and salvation is foreshadowed in the experience of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50. He's the promised ruler from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. The Passover lamb in Exodus 12 points to him. He's a better mediator than the Moses of Exodus 32. The tabernacle of Exodus 35 to 40 points to his tabernacling or dwelling among us. The priest and the sacrifice of Leviticus points to the once and for all sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Uh, the bronze stake of numbers, which was lifted up on the pole so people could be healed by looking at it, foreshadows the fact that Jesus will be lifted up on the cross and the people will be saved by trusting in him. He is a prophet like Moses, whom, whom Moses said in Deuteronomy that, that one day God would, would send to his people. And Moses said, you must listen to him. There are many, many more references in, to, to Jesus in those first five books of the Bible. That's just a sample, but, but the Pharisees could not see. They thought they knew the scriptures they had, but, but they didn't know, really. 
And friends, think of all the sermons and Bible studies you've heard or you've led or given on the Old Testament. How many times has the Old Testament preached or studied without reference to Jesus? How many times is it just a moral story telling you to be good? Now, there are many moral lessons we can learn from the Old Testament. There are many examples to follow and warnings to heed, but if all we get out of the Old Testament is moralisms, then like the Sadducees, we've missed the point. One of my lecturers used to always ask us, can you preach a Christian sermon from the Old Testament without mentioning Jesus? And the answer, of course, is no. You can preach a Jewish sermon. You can't preach a Christian one. Everything in the Old Testament is there to point to Jesus. And when we know Jesus, we know the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Sadducees not only had a truncated Old Testament, they, they missed the most important dimension to it. They missed Jesus. They were ignorant of the Scriptures. But it wasn't just the Scriptures they didn't know. They didn't know the power of God where it's when it's staring them in the face. Jesus himself had performed great miracles among them. Miracles described in Matthew, Matthew 13 as works of power. The Sadducees could not see the power of God in the miracles Jesus was doing. You know, that same power word that Jesus used here was used back in Deuteronomy, part of the Bible they accepted. To describe the mighty deeds that God did when he rescued his people out of Egypt. That was the power of God. And what Jesus was doing was like it. And so even if they didn't have the past of the Old Testament to show that how Jesus was doing is what God said he would do when he would come to save his people, at least they had that. And they should have at least considered the signs and wonders Jesus was doing and said, look, we haven't seen anything like this since the, since the signs of, uh, and wonders God did when he rescued our forefathers from Egypt. Something must be happening. And they didn't. They knew neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And so they did not believe in Jesus. And they did not believe in the resurrection. And Jesus would have had every right to end the conversation there. He could have said, you are deceived because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God, so repent, change your attitude, and I'll talk to you again. But he doesn't. He's gracious to the Sadducees, and his mercy he goes on, and he gives the answer. And in doing so, Jesus gives fresh information about the resurrection that we would never have known unless he had told us. And with that one piece of information, the whole problem is solved. Jesus tells us in verse 13. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. There is no marriage after the resurrection. So there is no problem. Now for some people, no marriage after the resurrection may be a disappointment. For others, it's a relief. Now, we don't have a huge amount of information as to what things are going to be like after the resurrection. Maybe we wish Jesus given us more. There's there still other puzzles that we have. Still other questions that people ask. Details are hazy. But one thing we do know is that in the life after the resurrection, the exclusivity of marriage will no longer be needed. 
There'll be a perfection of relationship among all God's people. And the real marriage, the ultimate intimate relationship to which marriage and sex are meant to point to, will be the perfect union between Jesus and his bride. And the bride of Christ the church. It's all of us together as a body. And so marriage, as great as it is, points to something better. And at the resurrection, we attain the better thing. So marriage is no more. If you're still disappointed, listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his book, Miracles. The letter and spirit of Scripture and of all Christianity forbid us to suppose that life the new creation will be a sexual life. And this reduces our imagination to the withering alternatives, either of bodies which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all, or else of a perpetual fast. As regards the fast, I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who, on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure, should immediately ask whether you ate chocolate at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard the absence of chocolate as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain would you tell him that the reason why lovers in their carnal raptures don't bother about chocolates is that they have something better to think of. The boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing which excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, except in glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for us. Hence, where fullness awaits, we anticipate fasting. Jesus says there is no marriage after the resurrection. That's why our marriage vows are till death do us part, isn't it? Nowadays we care, you know, we see lots of wedding cards and marriage things with all the sloppy stuff about, you know, being joined together for eternity and all that, but that's not right, is it? Don't put that on your wedding card, or wedding card of your kids, right? Marriage is a lifelong union. It's not an eternal union. The eternal union is a union between Christ and his church. There's no marriage after the resurrection. So, there is that missing piece of information that makes sense of the whole thing. And so the silly Sadducee story doesn't disprove the resurrection at all. Once we have that extra piece of information, which we couldn't have got any other way, it makes perfect sense. The problem is, unless we had that piece of information, then unless Jesus had told us that, we wouldn't have known it. Our brothers and sisters, what do you do when you think of something that, in the Bible that puzzles you? Maybe about the resurrection. Oh, how's God going to bring all your atoms together when it's been just you know, dispersed in the ground or something. Or you've been cremated. Maybe someone asks you a question you can't answer. Of course, it's good to search the scriptures and try and work it out and you know, talk to someone else and see if they can help you. But if you can't work it out, what do you do then? The Sadducees would take the puzzle and say, ah, well, that proves it's all rubbish anyway. But those who know the scriptures and the power of God, those who know Jesus will say, okay, there will always be puzzles. There will always be things that we can't work out because we don't have all the bits of information. God hasn't told us everything. He doesn't need to. He 
he has told us everything that we need to know, but not everything there is to know. And just like this puzzle was solved with one more piece of information, which is perfectly consistent with the rest of Scripture, as this puzzle was solved with more information, so will our puzzles be. For if we know the Scriptures and the power of God, then we will trust in the Lord Jesus, and we will be confident, even though there are things we don't understand. And so unlike the Sadducees, we won't be looking for excuses to use these things against him, looking for excuses to, to fail to give him the proper place in our lives. We will know there is more. We will be humble about our ignorance. Now when Jesus said, but at the resurrection, people neither marry nor give in marriage. He made his point, didn't he? The Sadducee argument collapsed. But notice that Jesus didn't finish there. He could have. He added a little bit on the end. He says, they are like the angels in heaven. Among whom, we now realize from this passage, there is no marriage either. What is an angel? The word angel means messenger. It's used three ways in the Bible. Firstly, it's used for spiritual beings that are meant to be messengers of God. They are created beings who live in the spiritual realm. Some are good, though some have fallen into sin. There are many references to angels right throughout the Bible, so just because you haven't seen one doesn't mean they don't exist. Secondly, the word angel is sometimes used for human messengers as well, because the word angel and the word messenger is the same. And thirdly, it is sometimes used for God himself in a puzzling way, which we'll get to in a bit. Now, when Jesus speaks about the angels of heaven, clearly he means angels in the first sense, a created being who are messengers of God. And Jesus adds this to tell the Pharisees they don't marry either, even though his argument is complete without that statement. Why? Well, angels were another thing that the Sadducees didn't believe in. So by bringing them up, Jesus is not only affirming what he's saying about the resurrection, but he's also highlighting the fact that they don't believe in this one this thing either. So they attack him on the resurrection, he comes back not only on that, but also on their doctrine of scripture, and also on their doctrine of angels. All the things that differentiate them from the rest of the Jews. Sadducees and Sinkers. And then he goes on the offensive, in verse 31, 32. But as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now in Exodus 3, in our Old Testament reading, uh, again, part of the Bible that the Sadducees recognize, an angel of the Lord, in verse 2, uh, appeared to Moses, in a bush that was burning and yet not consumed. And yet this angel, or this messenger, when you read down the verse 4, as you can see on the screen, turns out to be the Lord himself. See, one sentence he's the angel or the messenger of the Lord, and the next sentence he's, he's Yahweh, the Lord. Another one of those puzzles, which are not solved till later, until we find that the Son and the Spirit are both God, and yet distinct from the Father. So, they can be said to be messengers of God at the same time as being God. But 
But back in Exodus, you really wouldn't be able to figure that out. Certainly the Sadducees couldn't. Yet they had it there in their scriptures and they lived with it, so so much for having to solve all puzzles. But the bit that Jesus draws their attention to is down in verse 6, where God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now that's how he quotes it in verse 31 of Matthew. He says, Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Do you know, incidentally, do you see that? The significance of the way Jesus puts it? In Exodus, that's what God said to Moses. In Matthew, Jesus says, Have you not read what God said to you? See, what God said to Moses 1,500 years beforehand is what God was saying to the Sadducees that day. But friends, God's Word is it's living and active. God continues to speak through His Word every day. It's not as if the Bible is just a historical record of what God said. God, by His Spirit, is speaking to us today, even through words that are written down 2,000, 3,000, 3,500 years ago. And God says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, the point, though, that Jesus is making is this. You know that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they all lived hundreds of years before the time of Moses. Which means they were all dead by the time God said this to Moses. They were certainly all dead by the time God spoke this to the Sadducees in his word at the time of Jesus, and as God speaks his word to us today, but even in the time of Moses, they were all dead. Uh, God did not say, I was the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. He says, I am. I am the God of Abraham. God is their God. And so as Jesus says at the end of verse 32, He is not the God of the dead, but the living. That is, as far as God is concerned, He says, I am the God of Abraham. I, I, God still has relationships with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their bodies may be dead in the grave, but as far as God is concerned, they are not extinguished. They are in relationship with Him. And if you know God, if you are known by God, if God is your God, if you have relationship with God, then spiritually you are alive. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead in body, but in spirit they were alive and well in the presence of God. So the Sadducees are wrong, even by the parts of the Bible they do accept. Life is not all there is. There is more to come. There is more for Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and there is more to come for us. The Sadducees did not know the Scriptures, and they did not know the power of God. For the Scriptures speak of the resurrection. And the power of God will eventually raise Jesus himself from the dead. The first fruits of the general resurrection to come. The Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection because they didn't know the scriptures or the power of God were exposed by Jesus in his counterattack. And they were silenced. And verse 33 says that when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And we realized, my friends, that none of this happened in private, wasn't there? It was a public debate. The Sadducees had been trying to trap Jesus publicly. Instead, he turned the tables on them. 
And the crowd, they were just amazed at this man. Who could stand up to the Sadducees of all their learning. He spoke with such wisdom. Such authority. Didn't need to quote the rabbis. Quote a scripture as authoritative. And added new information they couldn't possibly otherwise have had. Sadducees were stumped. The crowd was astonished. But for those of us who know the Scriptures and the power of God, this is no surprise. For why shouldn't Jesus speak with authority? He is the one who can tell us whatever we need to know. For He is God's Son. God made flesh and come into this world who perfectly reveals the Father. The one that all Scripture, Old Testament and New, speak about. One who died for our sins on the cross taking our place and paying the price for our forgiveness. The one who rose again from the dead by the power of God and by doing so, and once again proved the Sadducees wrong. And the one who will raise us at the end to be with him in the new creation. As his loving people, his magnificent bride. Friends, Jesus is Lord. We can trust Him and His Word. And so no matter how puzzling, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the way that he was just so full of your wisdom. He was able to answer all the attacks that were made upon him. And in doing so, show us more about your plans and purposes for us and for this world. We pray that we would be people who always listen to him what he has to say, that we be people who trust in him with our puzzles, things we don't understand, that we be people who don't truncate your word, but listen to the whole counsel of God, that we be people who see your son in all the pages of Scripture and who appreciate for what He's done for us. Our Father, we pray um, that You will enable us to keep trusting this Lord Jesus and to keep looking forward to the resurrection. Looking forward to the day when uh, we'll be with him forever. Uh, there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Well, the old things have passed away. And we as your church will be with him as his bride forever. We thank you for the hope that you've set before us. And we thank you for the certainty that you've given us in Christ. 
we pray that we would indeed live as people who believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.